Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. As we do every Thursday, we jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday, and we need a little comedy these days. So we'll listen back to my conversation a year and a half ago with local stand-up comic Andy Huggins. Nearly two years ago, the now 70-year-old Huggins appeared to become an overnight sensation on America's Got Talent. But as we found out, his career goes back more than four decades and crosses paths with some of the all-time comedy legends. Without further ado, let's jump into the time machine, which will eventually take us back to a magical time in comedy in the 1970s. I will pay anybody $15,000 to find me a lady friend. Now she has to be kind, she has to be fun, and she has to be wealthy because I'm going to owe somebody (laughs) $15,000. Thank you very much. Well, usually my guests on the show have a relation to Houston sports, but for this one, I'm talking to somebody who actually does love sports, but who has a hell of a story well beyond the sports world. Andy Huggins is with me in the last few years. I saw Andy perform comedy in Houston with our mutual friend, Matthew Broussard, who ended up going to Hollywood and has since hosted an MTV2 show at a Comedy Central stand-up special and performed on Conan O'Brien. Now, when I ran into you a few months ago, Andy, I asked you, how's it been going? You said, well, I've had an interesting week. I was on America's Got Talent, and it went rather well. How well did it go? The judges in the crowd adored you. And at last count, I saw, what, what was it, YouTube? The YouTube clip of you had 750,000 views or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yes, and did go uh, very well. What's your name and where are you from? Andy Huggins. I'm from Houston, Texas. So is this the big dream? To do stand-up on uh, national television? Absolutely big dream. Good for you. Well, good luck. What was that like? What was it like to to go on America's Got Talent? What was the whole process? How did that happen for you? Well, what happened was a couple of years ago, I was in a comedy contest at the Improv in Addison, and they filmed it. It was on the Internet, and one of their producers found it and liked it a lot and gave me a call. Say, would you consider uh, participating? And I said, of course, yes. And then the process involved their story editor calling you and getting your background, what you do now, what you've done. There were two phone calls from that gentleman. And to jump way ahead, I think that's why I advanced to the second round. I didn't advance to the third round. I wasn't told why, but it was the producer's decision. And I'm almost sure it's because my backstory is just boring. Let's get to your backstory because it's it's incredible to me. So, you know, when I asked you, I said, well, you know, how long have you been doing this? Eight or 10 years? And you said, no, no, I, I've been doing this since the 70s. Tell well, the story. You were living in, you grew up in Virginia, right? Yeah, I grew up in Virginia. This is uh, 77, 76, 77. And I'd always been fascinated by comedy, stand-up in particular. But in the mid-70s, there was no place in Virginia. I mean, the comedy boom hadn't started yet. There was the improv in New York and the comedy store on the West Coast. But I decided that stand-up is what I wanted to do. I (laughs) did a couple of of shows in Virginia uh, going on in between a folk singer during his break, just a couple of times. And then with all that experience, 
and not that much money, knowing absolutely nobody in Los Angeles, not having a plan other than I was going to go up on uh, open mic night at the comedy store. And that was, when I think back on it, Robert, I get the shivers because it was the stupidest plan ever because there was no plan. I, I just went. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know, I thought I had enough money to survive for a while. And, of course, that wasn't true. That was nowhere near true. But I got real lucky. My first night at the comedy store, I did real well. And they asked me to come back the next week. And I thought, well, they're asking me to come back next week because I did real well. What I did know was the next week I was showcasing for Mitzi Shore. And I didn't even know I was showcasing for when I went on stage. I just thought I was uh, doing another set. And for the people that don't know, the comedy store, I mean, that's where everybody went that wanted to make it big because Johnny Carson would mention on his show every night. That's how I knew about it, yeah. Yeah, he would say, look, uh, I just found this guy at the comedy store and everybody – that got on Carson seemed to be be a big deal right afterwards. If they hit, yeah. it was it was their that made their career, and you weren't even considered a comedian, right? Unless you were on Johnny Carson, almost right. And and so I unknowingly auditioned for Mitzi and got passed. So if if I had to if I didn't get passed and I had to keep going to the open mics every Monday and standing in line and I don't know how it would have turned out. So that was the first just unbelievable. Uh, bit of luck worked out that way. So I was out there for a couple of years. Some people from Houston moved uh, out to Los Angeles, Bill Hicks among them, my great friend Jimmy Pineapple and Riley Barber. One by one, they moved back to Houston. This was in the early 80s. And one day, they're all back in Houston. They called me up. I was still in Los Angeles. And they said, you need to come to Houston. There's more stage time. Because in Los Angeles, I'd occasionally get spots. Then I'd go weak without getting booked by Mitzi. Then a couple of spots in a week. It was very frustrating. And they said, no, you come to Houston. They're, they were all members in good standing uh, at the comedy workshop. You go on to the comedy workshop immediately, a couple of nights a week, and we got this, we got that. That's all I needed to hear was more stage time. But at the comedy store out in Los Angeles, when you got there, I mean, first of all, one of the funniest moments, one of my, my favorite moments was when Howie Mandel said, Hey, weren't you the same Andy Huggins that I knew at the? Because Howie Mandel was there at the Comedy Store back in the late seventies. About when the same were, time, yeah. Forty years ago, I remember Andy Huggins as a twenty-eight-year-old kid, no, like really? me, on the stage. No, we were both starting out yep. together. Yeah. Do you remember me and you kind of starting out together? Absolutely. Yeah. So he remembered you, but I mean, you're out at the Comedy Store at the time, and the names out there, and and my favorite book one of my favorite books is uh, i'm dying up here it's a great book details that whole scene back in the 70s and the names david letterman jay leno andy kaufman richard lewis robin williams elaine boozler freddie prince jimmy walker richard Pryor. all these did you see all these guys everybody but freddie prince and it's, it was just so amazing cause like i said i was in uh virginia i'd never been at a comedy club Never hung out with comics. And now all of a sudden, because I was made a regular, I had the uh, option of coming by the comedy store and just hanging out, even if I wasn't performing. So I would do that. And all of a sudden, I'm uh, hobnobbing and rubbing elbows and exchanging thoughts with Letterman <laughs> and Leno and uh, Elaine Boozler. I met Richard Pryor there. 
What, what, what were, let me just go through some of those names. David Letterman, what, what do you remember about him back at that time? We got along real well because we talked baseball. Everybody back then knew David was going to be big one day. I mean, he was a superstar at the Comedy Store and elsewhere, but he hadn't hit it big yet, hadn't had his daytime show even yet. And everybody wanted to talk show business with him, and everybody wanted to schmooze him about this, that, and the other. And I, we, he grew up in Indiana. We lived in Indiana for a while. And one day we just we got to talking baseball, and we just talked Cincinnati Red baseball. Of course, we were back then when he was growing up in Indiana. It was uh, Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson and th- that crew. So, yeah, we got along great. We When he did um, his daytime show, obviously I didn't get a, a, a position on it, but he called me in to interview for it. We, we got along real well. Real nice guy. In fact, all those guys that I just named and and Elaine Boozler also, they were always – Steve Landisberg was great this way. Barney Miller, he's known for the – Oh, he was so good. He was such a good stand-up. They were always concerned about how you were doing. You get enough stage time, you're working on your new jokes. They never – you know, there are a lot of guys. You ask them what's up and they'll give you, you know, what they've been – where they've been playing for the last three weeks and everything that's going on. They'll give you their resume. But not, you know, the people I just mentioned, they were always more interested in what the young comics were doing. So that is great. And all of a sudden, these people I've been watching on TV for, you know, five, six, ten years on, you know, The Tonight Show and Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. Now, all of a sudden, I'm hanging out with them. It's wonderful. And Leno, from what I understand from everything that I've heard, he was a guy that the other comedians looked up for because he'd almost really become a professional b- before everybody else. I mean, he was so good at, uh, at being able to frame the jokes and, and tell the stuff at that time. Jay was terrific in, in, in the clubs. And I would go into the room every time Jay performed, even if he did pretty much what I saw him do two nights ago, whatever. He, he was just a wonderful performer, both in material and the delivery and the persona, dealing with the audience. Oh, yeah, he was great. What do you remember about the hurricane of Robin Williams coming in and doing this? Did you, do you remember that much? Uh, you know, yeah, he would come in. I, you know, he didn't have to call in for spots. He'd show up and they'd put him on. One time, it did not go well, but one time, what was the order? I think I went on between him and Steve Martin one time at the original. Nobody wanted to follow either one of them. And I'm standing right, well, I'll, I'll go on. <laughs> and I don't remember what I said, but the first line was obvious. I just made some reference to what was going on that I was following Steve Martin. That got a huge laugh. Then after that, I just died. Just died. <laughs> then somebody told me, you should have been taping that whole sequence where, you know, Steve Martin says goodnight and they bring me up and then they introduce Robin Williams. But that's not on tape. And, and Robin was like, at that point in his career, you know, he, he I think he had just hit, well, he had gone on to Happy Days and that whole yeah. episode that he was on blew up into Mork and Mindy. Was yeah. he, where was he at? Was he at Mork and Mindy by that time? Uh, the first time I met him, you know, there was a, a new laugh-in that they tried. He was a part of that cast. And I think it was right after that, leading into Mork and Mindy, leading into uh, Happy Days, leading into Mork and Mindy. And, yeah. and Letterman was, I think, on the Mary Tyler Moore's variety show at that point? He, Yeah, him and Michael Keaton both, I think, uh, wrote and performed on uh, her her variety show. And was yeah. Keaton, he was he there as well? Michael Keaton was there as well. Michael Keaton had a great stand-up. He had a very good... You can find some of it on, on the Internet. Michael Keaton, he was real good. But I, And I don't know how much 
he went on the road. I, I know uh, he did some road work, but I think m- mostly the stand-up was to showcase his acting talent because acting, I think, is what he was more interested, obviously more interested than uh, his stand-up. But he was an excellent stand-up. Everybody loved Michael's act. I guess the seas parted when Richard Pryor showed up for the comedians. Oh, yeah, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, Richard Pryor's the best I ever saw. And I've seen so many. I mean, we just may, named yeah. half a dozen, eight different great comics. And I've seen them. And they're one. But Pryor's the best. And there's nobody that's a close second in my mind. He was that good. And, yeah, the seas parted. He would come by the comedy store when he decided when he was – Preparing a, uh, an album or a, a film, uh, you know, Live on the Sunset Strip or whatever the second one was. He would come by the comedy store every night and work on material every night. And as soon as word got out, it was just it was just pandemonium at the store. Who was the guy that gave you the best advice of, of that whole group? Who did you talk to? And they said something that, stu- that stuck with you. Any, any, of the, any of them? Not really. I don't think... They all emphasize the work ethic. You know, you gotta, you gotta write. You gotta get on stage. You just gotta do it. And I, you know, nobody told me. Well, you know, you need to, you need to change your, your persona on stage, or you need to be more animated, or uh, can you do impressions? Nobody gave me specific advice. It was just by example, and you know, the like I said, the the, the fact that they were always asking if you're getting enough stage time. And are you writing? So that was the advice. By implication, you need to write. After that, you come back to Houston. You're here because Bill Hicks and, and Sam Kennison and Ron Schock. And it's that the Texas Outlaw Comics you guys were known as, right? What happened was, and I think this was the late 70s, Steve Epstein, who was a comic, put together a show. And I forget what theater it took place here in Houston. But it was uh, Bill, Sam. Riley Barber, and Carla Bow, And they put on this show, and it was called uh, Comics on the Lamb or something. Somehow it had uh, outlaw connotations to it. They they went out to Los Angeles. Steve decided that he wanted to revive that idea, so he called it, came up with the Texas Outlaw Comics. Uh, Sam wasn't a part of that particular group. It was Bill and, and, and Jimmy and Ron Schock and Steve and myself and John Pernetti. Now, later out in Los Angeles, Sam put together his own Texas Outlaw comics, and they had their own show. So it was like it's like the old days when there were two different groups calling themselves the Platters all. <laughs> we had two different groups doing Texas Outlaw comics. And as far as I know, nobody resented or there was no problem with that. That just uh, the way it worked out. But the group I was part of did not include Sam. Bill Hicks, you said, was a close friend of yours. You know, he he's sort of become a little bit of a legend. I mean, it's one of those where if you're a comedian and you die young, everybody. Th- but he was brilliant. I mean, yeah. he was a brilliant comic. Uh, he was really a political comic in a way where he would incorporate some of that stuff, but just very thoughtful, kind of the way Carlin would. He was yeah. kind of uh, try to undermine what you think you knew about whatever. Yeah. W- what was Bill Hicks like? Real sweet guy, uh, a great friend. I mean, if you were a friend of his, he uh, and he could, he'd take care of you whenever you needed help. You know, he never, when the comics were hanging out together, he wasn't shy, but he didn't try to dominate. I think a lot of people might assume that Bill was the 
you know, the center of any conversation, the center of any party, uh, the center hanging out. No, he hung back and, you know, was uh, like, again, he wasn't shy, but he didn't try to dominate things. Very uh, kind of a low-key personality. What was it like watching him on stage? Always, always, always a lot of, a lot of fun because uh, he's very adventurous, absolutely fearless. He was capable of uh, going off in a, a direction that wasn't planned. But, uh, yeah, so, it, you know, comics would come in to, to watch Bill when he was on stage. It's fun. He's, he was such a good performer, very physical, despite maybe his conversational style. The jokes were very well thought out and well structured. He's just a very, very, very good stand-up comic in every way. Sam Kinison, what was that like? What was it like to be around him? <laughs> How you yeah, hear you know, the stories? Yeah, with Sam, you know, and I don't know that I ever experienced or even heard about too many incidences to prove this point, but Sam was just that type of personality where you're just always on your toes because you don't know what could happen. When he's on stage, he just brought with him a... Uh, uh, an error of volatility uh, and just entered the room with them. And, you know, if if a fight broke out, you really couldn't be surprised <laughs> just just because, you know, Sam, Sam had that kind of energy. Sam was a lot of fun on stage for a while to watch. Then he got kind of lazy about it. But uh, uh, when he first first started uh, gaining national attention, he was fun to watch. You got to have a good story about Sam. Uh, just some some crazy thing happened, and do you, what what do you remember about anything that happened with him? Sam moved out to Los Angeles about the time I moved to Houston. We probably might have passed each other in the air, so I didn't spend a lot of time around, around Sam. The, the 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 great story. I don't know if you've heard this, but this is the the most popular story about Sam. The uh, old workshop was at Shepherd and San uh, Felipe, and right across there was a, a convenience store. He got. Ve- Kicked out of the suspended, I guess, from the comedy workshop one day. I don't remember why. Who knows? It might have been broken. Something might have gotten broken or something. So Sam, and I think he got a, a, a news crew out there or something. He crucified himself on a across the street. He uh, did a uh, Christ-like uh, pose <laughs> on the building. and uh, He may have been dressed uh, scantily or something, but that was because... Uh, and like I said, he had, he got a news crew or three, newspaper person or three down there to record it and document it. But uh, yeah, we didn't spend a lot of time. That's, you know, I, Sam wasn't somebody I was real comfortable around. It you know a lot. He was very popular as well. He was great company. But like I implied before, he just had carried with him. Uh, kind of potentially uh trouble was lurking always yeah, yeah there was always uh, you know this is no not breaking news but uh, you know there's just always a lot of a lot of drugs with yeah, sam and unsavory yeah it just wasn't he wasn't uh he wasn't fun off stage for me and i uh, i guarantee you i was a minority uh opinion as far as that goes but uh he was a powerhouse on stage there's no doubt about that I mean, obviously in L.A., you know you're around some special guys, but just the guys here in Houston at that time, I mean, do you realize as it's happening that, man, this is a special group to, to be a part of and to go on stage behind and in front of and that kind of thing? We knew we were special because as it was going on, if we went on the road and, and, and comics in other cities found out we were from Houston, they 
couldn't do enough for us. We had a great deal of uh, respect and admiration from comics around the country. So we got we we got an idea that maybe, and you can just on any given night, and and you know, most of them are people you you wouldn't recognize or your listeners wouldn't recognize. But gosh, there were so many good headline quality acts, wide variety uh, of acts. You know, from guitar acts to prop comics to monologists and to satirists and impressionists it's just we we knew this was i mean you could just uh stand in the room and listen to the audience and realize this is something this is something unusual because uh, it was just boom 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 comic after comic killing how long did that golden era do you think la- lasted here in houston as as far as the comedians are concerned well i think the workshop probably opened uh around 76, 77, and I think people started to disperse and then the, the the comedy scene started to lose a little momentum itself, probably around the mid-80s. I think the club itself closed in the late 80s. They probably had a good eight, nine years, but then other clubs started to pop up that were competing, and there, there was probably a couple other problems also. But, uh, yeah, I would eight eight, nine years. What kept you here in I mean, you could have gone back to Los Angeles and pursued things. What kept you here in Houston, and, and what made you stay? Actually, I did go back to Los Angeles in 91. I swear to God, Robert, I don't remember why. I remember going back out there not doing anything or pursuing anything. I don't know what the hell I was doing. To this day, I couldn't, and it's not that long ago. Do you feel like you, you could have hung, you were hanging with these other guys as far as how you were on stage and, and your comedy at that time? Well, it was so much, you know, I, I stayed in Houston. I'm in Houston now just because of the uh, comedy energy that's here and the stage time that's available, particularly back in the early 80s. And gosh, nobody laughed more than I did back then. I swear to God, my friends were so funny. All those guys were so funny, you know, and I was drinking and not really planning a career. I'd never thought past next Thursday. So uh, that was another reason uh, to hang around. I wasn't making plans to advance in my career. But mostly it was stage time and and, and, and the guys. Was it hard to stay away from because there was in comedy, there's especially at the time in the 70s and 80s when you were in L.A. and in Houston, I mean, there was all the, the drugs and stuff like that. I mean, Sam was like on a whole other level, but there was a lot of, a lot of that. There's, you're, you're kind of around alcohol all the time. How, how difficult was that to stay away from? And what, you know, how did you deal with that? I participated for a while. I got sober. I probably quit doing drugs maybe around 85 or 86. I quit drinking in 88. So I got 30 years sobriety. And, you know, it, it, I mean, I participated, so it wasn't hard to stay away from it. Or it would have been, I guess, but I didn't want to. So it was, you know, cocaine was, there was a time where cocaine was just every place here in Houston. And it was always at the club. I don't know. I, I did it for maybe a year or so and then quit because it scared the hell out of me. But I, I never had to buy any. Nobody ever had to buy any because there were drug dealers that loved hanging out with us. So I guess if you were inclined in that direction, it was difficult to stay away from it because it was always uh, around. Were you guys like rock stars? I mean, were there women kind of coming at you yeah, as well kinda, at that time? Yeah, kind of. Some more than others. I don't know that I was at the top of that particular list. But, yeah, yeah, people people thought of, you know, they would. 
invite us to parties at mansions and everything because they just wanted us around. There were several restaurants and bars where we were carte blanche and, you know, there were women uh, were attracted uh, to the whole scene. A lot of women were, so kind of rock stars. That might be an overly uh, romantic way of looking back on it with, you know, 30 years memory. Before America's Got Talent, what was the closest that you had where something happened or it looked like you might get something that blows up into something more than that? Back in the very early 80s, before I moved to Houston, I did a couple of TV shows, but they were the type of TV shows that weren't going to lead to anything, and I didn't expect it. You were on situational, like situational comedies? No, no, a Don Kirshner's rock concert, which had a, uh, a comic every week. I went down and taped that with about six other comics in front of uh, maybe a dozen people. That same day, they had taped Devo, and they had a big crowd. Then Devo finished taping. Almost everybody left. They had about 12 people there. And so we all went on. Like I said, there were about six of us. The producer came to us beforehand and uh, said, you're not going to get any laughs. You're just not going to. But don't worry about it. Um, uh, we'll sweeten it up. Just do the joke. Pause where you normally pause. We'll throw in the laughs. Now, they uh, they did a great job, you, you know, and they inserted each of us in six different shows. I think I was on with uh, one of the Pointer Sisters, and uh, I forget who else. But at any rate, this was funny because me and, and, and a friend, Irv Burton, were watching a comic go on in front of these 12 people, and he wasn't getting any last. None of us did, but he would do a joke, and then pause forever. And Irv and I go, what the hell is he doing? Nobody gets a laugh that long. What's he doing? Then Irv finally figured out what he was doing. He was forcing them, he thought, to put in an applause break because he paused so long. So he was saying, well, they're going to have to fill the time with applause. Well, the joke was on him. He outsmarted himself because his never aired. That was Don Kirshner aired late. Friday night, maybe, I think, or late Saturday night. Yeah, that wasn't going to lead to anywhere. A lot of times the comics would bring their friends with them to the Tonight Show or to tapings of other stuff. Did, did you go to that sort of thing with, with uh, some of your friends who were comics? No. The the Mike Douglas thing, I got a call the night before. What was happening, it was the last year or so of the Mike Douglas show, so what they were doing was having one guest per show, a, a theme week or something, and it wasn't the normal panel and you know, three singers and then a comic and then a, an author. But they had scheduled uh, the Commodores, and they all came down with food poisoning. So they had to put together a show literally at the last hour. So I got a call one night saying, can you do the Mike Douglas taping tomorrow? Said, sure. Again, about six of us went down there. We each performed on that show. We were introduced as up-and-coming stars or the next great whatever bullshit uh, 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 title they came up with. <laughs> so I I didn't have time to invite people. I don't I don't think I invited anybody to Don Kirshner's. You know, I've never been one to invite people to shows as a rule. It's just a distraction to know that you have a friend or family or whoever out in the audience, so... So you were on t television with America's Got Talent. How long had it been since you'd been on television performing comedy? Over 30 years. Say that was 1980, 81, 35, 36, 37 years. 
What was that feeling like being on TV and, and, and everything that happened at it with America's Got Talent? I mean, what, what did you think was that was going on? You know, I'm a little wiser now than I was, say, 30 years ago. I would have been 30 years ago. And I realized, you know, this will be nice. Have a great show. Get a good tape of it that, it, you know, after it airs, maybe something will happen. Maybe it won't. I never looked at it at any point. I didn't feel like I was in a competition. It was just too big. I've been in comedy competitions before. This didn't feel like a competition. This just felt like a gig in front of the biggest audience I'd ever played to. So, you know, I went out there thinking maybe so, maybe not. I got it, as I mentioned, because uh, somebody saw a tape of mine on the Internet. Uh, okay, this is a tape that's been seen by more, will be seen by more people under top-notch conditions. We'll see. Were you nervous? That's not damnedest thing, Robert. I am nervous before every show I do, no matter how. And when I say nervous, you know, you get that anticipatory set of nerves where you want to go on and, and do it. And If you're not nervous, do you feel like, oh, that's that the problem? That has always gone bad in the past when I go. But this time, an exception and a spectacular exception to the rule i went out there so calm which was good for a couple of reasons one of them being i was able to uh take in everything that was happening you know sometimes when you're a little uptight or nervous maybe your senses are kind of blocked to some degree and you don't remember everything that happened no i went out there for some and i cannot explain why but there's a uh, shot of me on the tape where I, they got a real uh, tight shot of me approaching the microphone and taking the mic out of the stand and I watch that, and I have such a smile on my face. I think, damn, Huggins, why were you that relaxed? It looks, it looked like I was absolutely ecstatic to be there. Let's go have some fun is what it looked like. And, again, I can't tell you why because it's the biggest audience I've ever played to, 3,000 people or more, huge stage. i got four judges sitting in front of me. If you do well on the show, the implications might be important. If you die, you don't want to. That could be very embarrassing. And plus, the show started late. That always drives me crazy when, when something starts late. It started late. There was no room to go be by myself. You're just surrounded by all kinds of, you know, the other 72 acts waiting to go on. So those are all circumstances that normally would have made me crazy, absolutely crazy, particularly starting late. Didn't. Don't know why. Did you get to meet Simon? Did he, did he talk to you? No, I talked to Howie afterwards, after our show was taped in about 10 comics. Uh, and I'm doing interviews afterwards with the show. Then I'm going back to the hotel and how he's out there uh, uh, having dinner with a couple of people. And went over, we talked for a bit, but I didn't meet the uh, the other three. What do you remember about Howie at that time back in the late 70s? I mean, what was he like as a comic? I remember he talked about, he's talked about, you know, he that was the time, I guess, where he would go on and blow the condom up over yeah. his head and, and do all that sort of, and, and being nervous was kind of his shtick. Yeah, he had, you'd almost call it almost kind of a spastic body language while he was on, on stage. And he did some something odd with his uh, hand as he was talking, a kind of an odd hand gesture that didn't look nervous. The kind of a gesture uh, you, you would expect to see somebody who wasn't all quite there. And that was the, the uh, and he was he was a very strong act. We worked mostly on the same shows at Westwood, the Westwood Comedy Store, which is near UCLA, of course. And yeah, he always always. I guess he had been doing it. I don't know how long he had been doing it in Toronto, but uh, 
when he showed up in California. It was a fully formed, well thought out act. Good guy too. Yeah, real friendly, real friendly, real friendly. And and overall, you're saying most of these guys that you or all all, all of them pretty much uh, that you remember back from that time, everybody was pretty much a good guy that you yeah you know on that basis i mean yeah i'm sure if i knew some of them better i might see some things that would but you know you're at at the comedy store on sunset at the comedy store on westwood you're hanging out you're you're all there to do comedy your your peers uh even though you've been in it 17 minutes and they've been in it 10 years they still treated you like a peer because you're going on stage and telling jokes. Under those circumstances, yeah, everybody was a good guy. Do you feel like when you kind of look back on everything, is it uh, something that you just you can't believe happened to you, that you were at, at these places at these times and you got to be around these people? Or is there a part of you that thinks, oh, I wish I had, you know, when you see the success that they, I wish I had some of that success. I mean, how do you feel when you look back in that in that whole era well for when i was at the uh comedy store i just it makes me smile it was remarkable you know because i i also remember what it was before i went out there i wasn't around comedy and i'm very blessed i'm doing exactly what i'm supposed to be doing exactly what i'm supposed to be doing i'm so blessed that way and so being out there it just kind of felt natural too i i belong i read a great book called the last laugh and I, it, it's about stand-up comedy, Phil Berger, who's also writ, wrote a great book about the New York Knicks. But it's about stand-up comedy post-World War II up to maybe the mid-'70s. And I read it before I ever went out to Los Angeles, before I ever officially in my own mind committed to doing stand-up. But I read that book, and it didn't always paint a charming lifestyle. But I read that, and I thought, well, those are the people I need to be hanging out with. I, you just know. Sometimes you just know that's where you belong. So I look back on those days. Yeah, it was great. That's where I should have been. Who were the guys that you looked up to when, when you were thinking about doing this? Who, who, who did you see on TV or the, the comedians that really inspired you? Geez, I just loved all the, the on the Ed Sullivan show, you'd see these East Coast comics that did kind of aggressive, which is totally what I'm not. But I got a big kick out of those guys. Woody Allen was a big influence. I love Bob Newhart, but I don't work anything like him. I, Woody Allen was the biggest, biggest influence. A lot of comics that I, the younger comics, I had, they're not even aware he did stand up. Yeah. But he's very good. He's very yeah, he was, he was great. He, I remember he did that uh, stand up on the Academy Awards. God, it might have been a while back now. It's probably close, close to around 2001. But yeah, he knocked it out of the park. Oh, yeah. And that's the first time he'd actually done a stand up routine in quite a while. But there was all these, you know, this is kind of interesting because I remember some people, I forget what led to this uh, particular thinking on my part. But to me, it was always about the jokes. I can't remember being in that, you know, I would admire them, but the person themselves inspiring me. It was what they were doing, if that makes sense. Right. That inspired me. The fact that they were doing comedy was more inspirational. So... You know, it's always about the jokes. It's always been about the jokes. We haven't talked to any sports yet, but I know you, you love the Astros. I know you love baseball. What did you think about the Astros season and everything that happened? It's been the early 90s since anybody repeated, I think. So difficult. So they, they won the World Series. Then they came back and won more games. 
than the team had ever won before. They were uh, every bit as good, swept Cleveland. Then they ran into Boston, who was just a – they were the best team in baseball this year. So be interested to see who stays and who, who goes. I, I have all the faith in the world in Lunau to replenish the roster as it needs replenishing. I got a tough question for you. If you're going to put one Houston Astro on stage to go up there and uh, tell some jokes, who's the guy that you're going to go with? I mean, Bregman's got a personality. He would have no fear. Oh, but... yeah. See, that was the first one that came to my <laughs> mind for exactly that reason. I don't know how funny he would be, but uh, he wouldn't be intimidated by the uh, – he might even have too much confidence in his ability to to get jokes. I don't know um... – I heard Brian Brian McCann's a funny guy behind the scenes. I've heard that too. I I've never seen seen it uh, demonstrated, but I'm, I'm guessing Reddick wouldn't have any. Wouldn't be shy. Either. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't have any fear either. Yeah, I don't know that he'd be funny. Bregman would be, if you could write material for Bregman, then he might be a uh, a good choice. I'm trying to think. You know, McCullers is. Uh, I bet with the right material, McCullers could would do very well. Yeah, he's very well spoken to. Yeah, and yeah. He's not and a, he, he wouldn't and be afraid. I've, yeah, I've listened to him interview, and he he's he knows what funny is, and he he enjoys having fun with the topic. This that yeah. Now I don't know how sharp the punchlines would be, but he might be good. How hard was it to, for you to become an Astro? Because you said you grew up a Reds fan. Was it difficult to take the Astros in? At, at what point did you realize you you got here? I guess in the early eighties. What what point do you realize? Yeah, I'm kind of an Astros fan now. I would say probably after my first trip trip to the Dome. What was that like to, to go see that? Because that, oh, it was a great place to have uh, watch a game. After yeah. after you know, I guess had you ever been to an indoor stadium before you'd gone no, to the Dome? No, I follow baseball. So if I'm reading about the Astros seven days a week, I'm going to become a I'm going to become a fan, regardless of how good they are, just because that's who I'm most familiar with, and that's who I go watch. You know, I, we we were always out at the ballpark. So, uh, yeah, it didn't take me long at all. It's a hell of a story, Andy. I mean, it's it's so cool to talk to you because, you know, I'm just such a fan of that whole generation uh, that you got to be around in Los Angeles and the, and the guys here in, in Houston and Bill Hicks and Kennison and all, all that group, just an amazing group of talent. I mean, it's so cool that you got to be involved with that. And so amazing that, I mean, here you were, uh, almost 40 years from the time that you started, you you become a quote-unquote overnight sensation, which is, has got to be something really neat. Um, I, I got a bit of a bump as far as booking goes from America's Got Talent. I had this faith that uh, just like somebody saw the contest tape that led to America's Got Talent, somebody's going to see this tape and something, you know, a, a bigger bump. But uh, I have had kind of an odd low key career arc. It's not uh it's not uh it's not typical I don't think. So and it's not done. Not done yet. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thank you, Robert. I want to kick this off because I love people who still have that determination and that dream, which is why you're gonna get a yes from me. Thank you. I think that this is your time and I want to help you get there so you're gonna get your second yes. Thank you. Andy, you've been waiting 40 years, and I'm telling you, you're like fine wine. It was worth the wait. You need three yeses, and I am so proud and honored to give you your third. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. 
Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.